3: So, Dan Josephson has been praised by no less than David Foster Wallace, who called this, Dan's first novel, bold, funny, mordant, and deeply intelligent. He is a Fulbright recipient and comes across country from Brooklyn to be with us tonight. I particularly like his map, I don't know if you saw that yet, but in the front of the book. yeah, I'll show you. It's pretty amazing. It's like that. And it's, I don't know if you guys ever read Tom Drury's book, End of Vandalism, but it's one of my favorite books and it has a similar kind of thing in it. So I was already endeared to it as soon as I... <laughs> and then Tom Bissell, also has been praised by one of Skylight Book's favorite writers. Uh, John Jeremiah Jeremiah Sullivan calls him one of our most interesting and ambitious writers. His work includes journalism, essays, criticism, short stories, fake commentaries, travel writing, politics, video games, film, and science. So you can see where the ambitious came from, right? That's good. (laughs) And uh, he is the author of six books and his awards include the Rome Prize and also a Guggenheim Fellowship. And tonight we'll be starting the evening with Tom's reading. Um, He's got a brand new piece to share with us. So please welcome Tom Bizzle.
0: Thank you all for coming out to this wonderful bookstore. Uh, My girlfriend and I moved here to Los Angeles about eight months ago, and this has quickly become one of our favorite places uh, in the city. If anyone's standing, if you guys want to sit, uh, please. Please, uh, I don't want to make you sit. (laughs) No no pressure. Okay, so I need a quick show of hands here before I I start my, my little spiel. How many of you know anything about Tommy Wiseau's film, The Room? Is anybody? Show of hands? So Tommy Wiseau is a man who, in 2003, spent $6 million of his own money making a film that he cast with uh, people that he uh, made and put in theaters, basically bribed theaters to show. And the film is so mesmerizingly bad that it's kind of become a global phenomenon amongst the young and the... uh, I I just don't want to say the word, I don't want to say the word, but like the hipster crowd loves this, loves this movie. And uh, I came to love this movie because it's bad in a way that very few films are bad. It's, it's rare that you see a work of art in which literally every single artistic decision the person makes is the wrong one. And, and it, it does this for, for 90 seven minutes. And so people have become sort of intensely devoted to this movie because it's really not like anything else. So I wrote a piece about the movie for Harper's Magazine, and that piece is included in my essay collection, Magic Hours. Well, then a person who was in the film named Greg Sestero, who was one of the main characters in the film, got in touch with me and he and I just started talking about his experience making this crazy movie. And he's like a a real actor and he's a model and an actor who had known Tommy Wiseau for years. Now, Tommy Wiseau is a very mysterious man. He refuses to divulge where he's from. Uh, He's obviously not from America. He's in America now, but he's not from America. He's also stinking rich and he never has really disclosed where he got the money from. Um, He claims to be in 30-something and he's obviously at least a couple decades older than that. (laughs) And uh, Greg gradually convinced me to write his memoir with him about the experience of meeting this extraordinary man, making this movie, and basically being at the ground center of this, the ground zero of this global phenomenon. And to give you guys a sense who haven't heard of The Room, what, what, what it's about and like how big it's become, when it premiered at the Ziegfeld in New York City, it sold it out for a week straight and the only film that had ever done that before was Star Wars The Phantom Menace. So amongst people who know this film, it's a a thing that people love. So I'm gonna read a chapter from this memoir of Greg's that he and I wrote together. So while you're reading, I want you to imagine that I'm about 6'4", and a male model, and um, (laughs) because I'm gonna be reading it in, it's told from Greg's perspective, but I'm gonna be reading it. So, the chapter I'm reading is uh, the week that Greg met Tommy, and he noticed him in class, an acting class, a week before, and he calls him the pirate because he has long, crazy black hair and and sort of looks like a strange fellow. And uh, the thing you need to know is that uh, Greg's mother, who's French, French-born French, French, uh, has never really approved of his acting career and doesn't think he should be taking acting classes. And uh, Greg and Tommy are studying in the acting class of a woman named Jean Jean Shelton, who was kind of a legendary uh, San Francisco acting teacher for... David and Donna were scene partners in Jean Shelton's class, and also extremely nice people, but they were in growing danger of raising Samuel Beckett from the dead and compelling him to stomp through San Francisco like Godzilla. I was sitting two rows back from Shelton, who was pinching the bridge of her nose and looking into her lap. When David and Donna came to the end of their scene from waiting for Godot, Shelton was silent, as was everyone else. David and Donna stood on stage like prey animals, waiting to see which of them would be eaten first. Jean Shelton looked a little bit like Yoda's mother. Short glasses, frizzy white hair. Yet she seemed to us, her students, as powerful and as potentially scary as a nuclear reactor. When you got up on stage in front of her, you were pulled between feelings of terror and exhilaration. She was the best kind of teacher in that you didn't care if she liked you personally. You just wanted her to respect you professionally. Shelton's class was held in a basement studio space on Sutter Street off San Francisco's Union Square. But for the stage, the room was kept very dark. You could always see Shelton, though, thanks to the way the light illuminated her halo of white hair. When we were awaiting her judgment as David and Donna were now, you dreaded the first few words from her mouth. Her accent was very mid-Atlantic, soft round consonants and fierce vowels. That big commanding voice of hers filled the room and cut through the darkness. "'Awful,' Shelton said to David and Donna. "'That was just... I'd tell you to try it again, but I doubt you'll do any better.' She waited for David or Donna to speak. They didn't. They couldn't even look at each other. Poor selection of material as well. I saw nothing good, nothing useful. She paused. I'm sorry. That was another thing about Shelton. You never felt as though she enjoyed being negative. She always seemed to genuinely want you to be great. As David and Donna climbed from the stage and collapsed into front row seats, Shelton looked around. Does anyone want to do anything? We still have some time. The stage is open. The seats in the theater were old, so their creaking served as a good indicator as to how restless the rest of the class was feeling. On this evening, the chairs were creaking like crazy. Everyone was ready to go. To my, and I'm sure everyone else's astonishment, someone stood in the back row. It was the pirate from the previous week. Today he was wearing black pants, an ostentatiously studded belt and a gleamingly pearlescent button-down shirt. He had a slightly hunched back posture and when he walked his arms barely moved. He went backstage and took his time picking around before returning with a fold-out chair, which he snapped open and slammed down on the stage so that its back was facing the audience. He straddled the chair, legs spread wide, and pushed his long dark hair from his face. It suddenly seemed possible that this guy was actually sort of great. No one who wasn't great could afford to conduct himself like this. (laughs) Sheldon asked him, and what are you doing for us, Thomas? No, not Thomas, it's Tommy. Bored already, Shelton scratched her nose. What are you doing for us, Tommy? The Shakespeare, Sonnet 116. (laughs) I heard someone mutter, oh no, not this again. I was watching Shelton very closely now. We all were. Proceed, she said. Let me not to the marriage of two minds, he began. Admit impediments. <laughs> he bludgeoned his way through the rest. Each line a mortal enemy. Where the sonnet demanded clear speech, he mumbled. When it asked for music, he went sing song. Everything he said was obviously the product of diligent mismemorization, totally divorced from the emotion the, wo- the words were trying to communicate. He was terrible, reckless, and mesmerizing. Once again, we waited, frozen within a dreadful glacier of Sheltonian silence. What is it exactly, Shelton finally said? that you're trying to do here? The guy threw his head back and flipped his hair over his shoulder. Sonnet, he said. (laughs) Yes, she said. But what are you trying to do? His bearing tensed up. Send a message, he said. express emotion of Shakespeare. (laughs) That accent, I thought, it sounded French, but not quite. Was there some Austrian buried in it? "'It's a sonnet,' he explained. "'You know sonnet?' <laughs> "'Oh, God,' someone said next to me. Her, her hand clamped over her mouth. "'Yes,' Shelton said. "'I know what a sonnet is. "'What I don't know is what you are trying to do.' The guy was silent. His face was getting red rapidly. Shelton noticed this and went into salvage mode. "'Look,' she said. "'The chair is not helping you. "'It's distracting. "'Maybe you should do it Standing up, his face was now a tomato with orifices, but he didn't budge. I disagree with that, he said. (laughs) Everyone in that class was at least a little afraid of Shelton. No one ever got mad at her for expressing her opinion, certainly, but this guy wasn't afraid of her. It felt oddly liberating to watch someone confront her. I see then. Shelton lifted herself from her chair and turned to the rest of us. You're all free to go. What I had just seen almost never happened in acting classes. The pirate was not only confrontational, but fearless, a trait I wanted better acquaintance with. Of anyone in our class, this guy had the least cause to be so outspoken, so confident, yet he was. I was intrigued. My mother, who was meeting me for dinner that evening, was waiting outside the studio. Just as I was describing to her the interesting French guy I'd seen in class, the sonneteer himself passed us by. (laughs) There he is, I said. My mother enthusiastically marched over, him to, over to him to say hi, just as any French person outside of France does when informed that a fellow native is within two kilometers. <laughs> Excusez-moi, mon fille me dit que vous êtes français. C'est vrai? The guy whirled around as though he'd been pickpocketed. <laughs> non merci, he said quietly. My mother didn't give up. D'où venez-vous? She asked pleasantly. I have to go now, the guy said. <laughs> My mother and I watched as he slithered away into the night. I thought, I, he, was Fr- I thought he was French, I told her. <laughs> that guy is not French, she said. Whatever he is, I think he's been put through the ringer. Or the <laughs> ringer. <laughs> Something big was how my agent described it to me, and the more I learned, the bigger it sounded. A film called Wildflowers, starring Daryl Hannah and Peter Coyote, was going to be shooting in the Bay Area. I saw this as my chance to land something that would pluck me out of town and plant me in Los Angeles. I ended up getting called back several times. Then my agent called. Everything was right, she said, but someone else fit the part better. When she saw how upset I was, my mother said, I told you so. When the person you're closest to is telling you to quit, it's not easy to go on. Her voice was still in my head. Acting classes, a joke. Agents, evil with a Rolodex. I almost didn't bother going to acting class that night. Hello. (laughs) I almost didn't bother going to acting class that night. Any momentum I'd thought I'd gathered had vanished. Classes, it was becoming obvious didn't guarantee anything. The only thing that made me consider going to class at all that night was the prospect of watching the unpredictable pirate go bananas on stage again. During the previous week's class, in the middle of his scene, he grabbed a glassful of water from a prop table and threw it against the wall. Then he kept going on with his scene as though nothing had happened. When Shelton asked him why he had done this, he answered, I was in zone. In fact, whenever Shelton questioned his creative choices, he answered as though he had as much right to expound on craft as she did. That night would be the Pirates' final performance with his current scene partner. They decided to do a scene from a streetcar named Desire. I had no doubt which scene they'd chosen. (laughs) Cut to pirate guy in a white tank top, his wild hair in a ponytail, wandering around stage left, crying out, Stella! many more times than the script called for, and occasionally breaking into exaggerated sobs. He wasn't even bothering to direct his agony toward his partner, the intended focus of the scene. He was just launching his performance out there into space. Two girls in the front row were squeezing each other's hands in an effort to contain their laughter. The actor sitting next to me, an older guy who was normally subdued to a fault, actually began laughing so hard he had to bunch his sweater up around his mouth. The pirate scene partner valiantly tried to bring him around with the smelling salts of actual lines from the actual script. And he kept yelling over her, Stella! Stella! Until he went to his knees, covered his face with, covered his face with his hands, cried for a moment, and finished with a final piercingly wrong, Stella! <laughs> Most bad performances are met with silence. This was something else. There were murmurs. There were giggles. Everyone in that basement studio knew they had just witnessed one of the most beautifully, chaotically wrong performances they would ever see. As for me, I felt resuscitated. I'd never been so happy to be in a classroom. Shelton did not wait to address the lunatic that lay prostrate before her. Thomas, or Tommy, I'm sorry, I must ask you again, what are you trying to accomplish? He was rising from the floor. His face was flushed, his eyes intense little blurs of emotion. I am performing the Tennessee Williams scene, he said. At this, his scene partner, an older woman, shook her head hopelessly. No, Tommy, Shelton said. I don't think that's what you were doing. I sensed Shelton's brain trying to plan its attack in a distractingly target-rich environment. (laughs) First, you did nothing to demonstrate Stanley's objective in the scene. She stopped, shifted, reversed. What is Stanley's objective in the scene? Stanley is hysterical, he said. No, that's not an objective. Stanley loves Stella. He's trying to reach Stella. And if he's trying to reach Stella to speak to her, he's not going to shout at the stage hands or audience members. He's going to address her. But you hardly noticed Stella. As far as your performance was concerned, she wasn't even on the same stage. That's when I realized what he'd been doing up there. He was looking for the camera. He wasn't thinking about Stanley. He was thinking about Brando. For him, there was no stage. There was only an appeal to a camera that didn't exist. You are wrong, he said to Shelton. I don't think she heard him because she kept going. Also, Stanley is a very strong man, a strong character, and a strong man. He's pursuing Stella. He's not screaming because he's in pain. Stella is right in front of you and you're yelling in the opposite direction. And so I ask you once again, what are you doing? I'm sorry, the pirate said. May I correct you? No, Shelton said pointing at him. No, you may not. No one was laughing now. But I had a thought, a thought I can't fully explain, even today. He should be my scene partner. I have to do a scene with this guy. Maybe he'd cheer me up. Maybe I'd learned some of his fearlessness. What made him so confident? I was desperately curious to discover that. It wasn't his acting, certainly, which was extraordinarily bad. He was simply, magically uninhibited, the only person in our class, or any class I'd ever taken for that matter, that I actually looked forward to watching perform. The rest of us were toying with chemistry sets, and he was setting the lab on fire. (laughs) After Shelton dismissed us, I made a beeline for the guy. He was getting his stuff together, putting on his jacket, the adrenaline still draining from his face. I knew he probably didn't feel like talking, so I got right to it. Do you want to do a scene together? He looked at me, his eyes narrowed, his mouth partly open. I couldn't tell if he was annoyed or offended or pleased. You and me? He asked. Yeah. Why you ask me? The directness of this question caught me off guard. I just thought that since you didn't have a scene partner anymore, he stopped me and reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a business card for something called Street Fashions USA. Well, he said, pick a play and call me on this number, only this number, we see, I think about it. On the card below the Street Fashions logo, Thomas P. Wiseau. Call me Tommy, he said as I read the card, not Thomas. His was an odd last name. It sounded sort of like Oiseau, the French word for bird, but French names don't begin with W. I'm Greg, by the way. To this he said nothing. Then he walked away. (laughs) 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 Should I introduce you or should uh, should you just come up in all of your fanfare? Dan Josephson, everyone. Uh, Thanks, Tom.
4: Uh, Thank you all for being here. Um, So I'm gonna read from That's Not a Feeling, which is set on the the grounds of a boarding school, a therapeutic boarding school, or an ostensibly therapeutic boarding school. Um, And the part that I'm gonna read is, where the narrator, Benjamin, has just, uh, he he thinks that he's been brought up to take a tour of the school and has recently found out that his parents have left and he is now enrolled uh, at Roaring Orchard School for Troubled Teens. And uh, I'm gonna begin uh, where his dorm parent, Ellie, uh, is collecting him and is about to bring him to meet his dorm. Uh, His dorm is called Alternative Boys keep up with me Ellie said and took my hand in hers we climbed a staircase which turned elegantly and then turned again Ellie led me through doorways and around corners and I quickly got lost in the maze of the mansion the higher floors were hotter and smelled of dusty wool carpeting the walls were white though scuffed and dirty near the floor At one point, we walked down a corridor with doors open on both sides to small bedrooms. Each door had a page from a spiral notebook taped to it on which were written three or four girls' names. The names appeared in bubble letters, imitation graffiti, or in letters with teardrops running down their sides to suggest melting wax or dripping blood. Then the signs stopped and the doors were blank, the hallway was narrow enough that Ellie had to walk on ahead of me. My book bag was slung over her shoulder and swung briskly across her back with each step. Her blue t-shirt didn't quite reach the top of her skirt, the waistband of which seesawed slightly as her, on her hips as she walked. I slowed down to increase the distance between us to see how far ahead she would go. When she rounded a corner and passed out of sight, I stopped, opened a door on the right, and slipped into a room. I quietly closed the door behind me. What little light there was came through a window high on the wall, its curtain drawn. I stumbled down two wide steps that led into the room. There was a shadowed futon against one wall of the room and opposite that, there was a desk with a computer on it. I walked quietly around the room once, letting my eyes adjust. I froze upon noticing that there was someone asleep on the futon. I stepped closer. It was a heavy middle-aged woman with dark curly hair. She would later be introduced to me as Frances, and for my first few months at the school, she was my therapist, until for some reason I was switched. She snored softly. I quickly returned to the door and listened. Not hearing anything, I opened the door and almost bumped right into Ellie. What were you doing in there, she asked. I fell behind, I said. I thought you went in there. What's that room for? No, I went around that corner. Ellie gave me a long, dubious glance. That's one of the therapy rooms. If someone had been in there, you and I would have been in a heap of trouble. How do you know no one was? I don't hear any trouble. Alternative kids aren't allowed to walk around alone. Only regular kids are. Come on. You always have to be with a staff member and when you're with the dorm, you'll always need to be within arm's length. Arm's length? It's part of Aubrey's system. He's the headmaster. The point is to develop honest relationships. That's a big step in dealing with whatever it might be you're dealing with." I nodded. I wondered what it was I was dealing with. Ellie explained some other things as well. I would be in alternative boys. Most new students started in alternative boys or alternative girls. Those were the middle dorms. New boys and new girls were lower functioning, she said. Regular kids were higher functioning. If I got violent, or if I tried to run away, I would be sent down to new boys. To get into regular kids, I had to follow the process, though Ellie was a bit vague as to what exactly this entailed. Students could only graduate from regular kids. But if I'm new, shouldn't I be in new boys? Oh no, Ellie said. There are some new boys who've been here forever. Right now, alternative boys are out on a reciprocity detail across the street working on the dirt pile. The dirt pile? Yeah, we'll head over there once we drop off your things. Ellie walked into a bedroom and tossed my book bag on the lower bunk of one of the two bunk beds in the room. This room will be yours, she said. She dropped an extra pillow from one of the bunk beds onto a plastic mattress that lay on the floor. That'll be your bed for now. We'll get you some sheets, but I don't think you'll need a blanket yet. If you do, there are some up in the attic to use until your parents send the rest of your stuff. Ellie took my hand again and led me down a long flight of stairs in the back of the building and onto a landing, and then down more stairs until we ended up in a damp basement lined with washing machines and dryers. In a back part, there were large wooden folding tables leaning against one wall and spider webs up in the corners. A short staircase led us outside and onto a wide white porch with peeling paint. I wasn't sure where we were in relation to the part of the mansion I had seen. The mansion's layout didn't seem to make any sense. Directly in front of us was a buckled macadam parking lot. Past that, a garden path led to a fountain. We walked around the porch to the front of the mansion, down the hill and across the lawn to the stone pillars and iron gate at the entrance to the school. There was an old weathered fence at the edge of the lawn. Some of the crossbeams had fallen from their posts and lay angled against the grass, which smelled like it had just been cut. Ellie led me to get across Route 294, the main road that ran past campus into Webituck. We walked toward a long, low building covered in red shingles. In front of the building was what I assumed must be the dirt pile. Seven or eight boys stood on it, each holding a shovel and digging away at the dirt tossing shovelfuls into the thin copes of trees behind it. Behind one of the boys was a fat, who was fat and drenched in sweat. A bearded man stood shouting, that's it pudding, there you go, keep digging now. When the man saw Ellie approaching with me, he called to the boys to climb down off of the dirt and get into a circle. The boys did, leaving a space for us. We joined them and completed the circle. Boys, Ellie said, this is Benjamin. Benjamin, this is alternative, boys. And this, she said to me, is Roger. He's a supervisor. Roger reached across the circle to shake hands. Glad to know you, he said. His eyes were watery and his face splotched red. Now, boys, why don't we go around the circle and introduce ourselves? Tell Benjamin where you're from and what got you sent here. Who's gonna start? A thin boy with a mop of platinum blonde hair began. My name's William. You want to see my dick? (laughs) God damn it, William, Roger. Roger sounded less angry than tired. That's not funny. He's new. He doesn't know you're joking. William was so pale I could see the blue veins in his neck. You think I'm joking, William said, unfastening his belt? I'll really pull it. Stop being an asshole and tell him why you're here. William laughed and fixed his belt. I'm from New Hampshire. I got sent here for taking a bunch of roofies when I was already on probation for beating up a kid. I ended up staring at a wall for like two days. They sent me here from the hospital. William's here as part of his probation, Roger added, as if William had been too humble to mention it himself. He nodded to the next boy in the circle who had thick dark hair and a nose that looked to have been smashed flat. I'm Eric, the boy said. I just got here too, like two weeks ago. It sucks. (laughs) Eric, Roger said. I'm from Baltimore, Eric continued. I skipped school a lot. I'm Carlos, said the boy next to him, who was very short and very skinny. My parents sent me here because I wasn't taking my meds during the day in school when I was supposed to, but most of the time I just forgot. He looked at Roger, then back at me. Sometimes I on purpose forgot. They sent me here so people could watch me closer. They continued around the circle. I couldn't keep track of much of it. The boys were from all over, but mostly the East Coast. Someone had been sent to the school for chasing his father around the house with either a fork or a hammer, but I couldn't remember his name. Someone's parents were afraid that he was going to hurt his sister. There was a large boy named Zach. Could there have been two Zachs? Someone else had messed up his... parent's car by either scratching it with a fork or hitting it with a hammer. I don't remember. Whichever the boy who had chased his father around hadn't used. (laughs) The fat boy whom Roger had called Pudding when they were shoveling dirt was still catching his breath when it was his turn to speak. He introduced himself as Andrew Pudding and said he'd found $10,000 in a safe in his father's office and had spent all of it boys around the circle began to smile and one of them said tell the new kid what you spent it on and Pudding stared at me and sighed and said I took cabs a lot of places. (laughs) Alternative boys all laughed but Pudding just kept looking at me. A boy named Han said he'd been sent to the school for not being a good enough driver, but the words were barely out of his mouth before everyone was yelling that he was full of shit, that no one got sent there for that. (laughs) Han shouted over them that parents could send kids to the school for whatever reason they wanted, that Aubrey was perfectly happy to take tuition from people whose kids had no other problem that they couldn't drive well, but the boys were not convinced. When it got around to me, I said, I'm Benjamin. My parents just left me. That's what they did to me too, Pudding shouted from across the circle. I hate that. They tell them it'll be easier that way, but it isn't true. And then they tell them everything you're going to say before you say it so they won't believe you. Yeah, someone added, and as soon as they're gone, Aubrey will call all the other parents and tell them to call your parents to tell them how happy they are that they sent their kids here and about how well we're all doing. Yeah, said Pudding, waving his shovel, and look at us. Roger stopped things there. He told us to get to work. The boys climbed back onto the pile of dirt and began scraping and shoveling, all except for me and Pudding, who waited next to Roger. Go on ahead and get to work without me, Roger told him. I've got to talk to Ellie for a minute. Don't let me catch you slacking. Pudding wandered around to the side of the dirt pile where Roger couldn't see him and sat down with his back to the rest of the dorm. I followed him since I didn't have a shovel. Pudding was pulling something out of his pockets and stuffing it into his mouth. I sat down next to him. What's that? I asked him. Pancakes. Don't tell. Pudding didn't offer me any. He just kept pulling pieces of pancakes from his pocket and eating them. The boys on the dirt pile above us were throwing shovelfuls of dirt in the direction of the woods with a slow, regular rhythm. Some of the dirt they tossed made it to the trees, the rest landing back on the pile or somewhere in between. Roger called out that he was leaving and that we should listen to Ellie. Soon after that, Pudding turned to face the boys up on the pile. Hey, could you please watch where you're throwing that dirt? Okay, someone called. Clumps of dirt rained down directly onto Pudding and me. (laughs) One shovelful hit me in the back of the neck, getting dirt down my collar. A small rock clipped me in the temple. Pudding stood up and started yelling, and when another shovelful got him in the face, he ran at the pile and grabbed for someone's ankle. I took a step back and looked up to see that it was William's ankle Pudding had hold of, and despite his hitting Pudding in the shoulder with his shovel, Pudding wouldn't let go. Then William's green eyes flashed in his gaunt face, not with anger, but with something like glee and he wound up and swung the shovel like a golf club, hitting Pudding in the side of the head so hard that I almost fell over. More amazing than that strike was the fact that Pudding seemed unfazed. He dragged William off the pile and fell on him. The other boys ran down from the top of the dirt pile and circled Pudding and William until Ellie got there, at which point they pulled the two boys apart. Pudding picked up his glasses and began cleaning the lenses on his shirt. William was smiling, some blood running from his nose. He pointed at Pudding's waist and said, Hey, what's that? A piece of pancake was sticking out of Pudding's pocket. (laughs) Nothing, Pudding said, and stuffed it back in. Bullshit, nothing, William said. That's a pancake. You've got goddamn pancakes in your pocket again. The rest of alternative boys were crowding closer to get a better look. Empty your pockets, Pudding, Ellie said. This is ridiculous, Pudding said, taking a step toward Ellie. William starts a fight and throws dirt and belts me in the head with a shovel and it turns into a debate about pancakes. This is why our dorm is always getting put on restriction, Ellie, because you let people distract you from focusing on the central issues. (laughs) Ellie's gray eyes darkened to touch. So you're saying you did take pancakes from breakfast and stuff them in your pockets? No, what I'm saying is that if someone gets violent with a shovel, that should get dealt with and not ignored to discuss pancakes, (laughs) and if I did, it wouldn't be against the rules anyway. Empty your pockets, pudding. Alternative boys were in the middle of arguing about whether it was or was not against the rules to take food from breakfast, and if so, whether pockets were an appropriate place to keep it when someone shouted that Han was running away. I turned to see him sprinting past the dirt pile and into the sparse woods behind it. Han was short and heavy and ran close to the ground with his arms pumping wildly at his sides. He tossed his shovel high over his head and picked up speed, his flannel shirt flying loose behind him as he went. Shit, Ellie said, as all the boys dropped their shovels and started chasing after Han through the trees. She ran after them and I jogged along behind her. The dorm followed Han through the woods and onto someone's front lawn and then onto Route 294. Ellie stopped when they got to the road and grabbed me. Go to the mansion and find Roger, she said. He should be in our dorm doing paperwork. Tell him that Han ran. She turned back to follow the boys running down the road as I called out, but wait, how do I even get to our... It's just right where we were before, she yelled over her shoulder. I've got to go. I stopped and watched Ellie and the dorm chasing Han. They were a clumsy bunch, some running on the road, some on the grass to the right. The pack slowly thinned to a string, the boys behind struggling to keep up. I waited until I could just make out the last of alternative boys disappearing over a slight rise in the road. When I saw they were gone, I looked at the road stretching away from the school in the opposite direction. By the time anyone realized it, it would be impossible for them to find me. I wondered what they would do, whether they had people who looked for runaways, if they would get the police involved. My parents would worry. The road ran straight as far as I could see, trees overhanging both sides. It would serve them right. Thanks.
0: Hi, hey, everyone. Um, so we were going to talk just for a little bit before we, we signed. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Dan's journey, this amazing, wonderful book that I, I, I love and adore, and I hope you all heard it reading it. He, Dan's just an extraordinary writer, and he's also one of the toughest, most resilient writers I've ever met. Um, I don't know how many of you are novelists in the, in the audience, but um, I was reading this book as Dan was writing it uh, you know, along the way and was sort of stunned at, at uh, just how good it was and how moving it was and kind of assumed it would get snapped up pretty quickly when he finished it. And it didn't happen that way. And so a lot of things changed in publishing in the last few years and things are a lot different, a lot harder. And I have no idea even if I'd been trying to sell a book in 2006, 2007, 2008, rather than when I did sell my first book, which was in 2001, um, what kind of luck I would have had. So Dan um just uh endured an awful lot of idiots saying they didn't get it, they didn't see it and uh I mean you can, I hope you can tell from just hearing it, you can see it, you can get it. And uh you stuck it out uh to a degree that uh I just have endless admiration and and um uh, well, I'm trying to think of another word for admiration, but there isn't one. I just had endless admiration for how how tough you were and how resolved you were. So I want to ask you, and I don't know if we've ever really talked about it to the degree that um, maybe we should have as as very good friends, but did you feel like t- at times you're just like, screw this book. I'm, j- I'm sick of it. Just move on to the next thing.
4: Um, well, thanks, first of all. That's really nice to hear. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of the reason that I kept on trying to sell the thing was exactly because of that. Because like I knew if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to let go of it. You know, and that uh, it didn't feel like just focusing on something else was was really possible. Um, it's also funny that like yeah you know, right now I feel really lucky, and a lot of that like uh, you know frustration just dissipated you know over the course of a five minute phone call when i <laughs> when I sold the book um, yeah they're
0: funny how that happens
4: yeah yeah, and there's certainly like some like grudges I hold, but that's really only on principle there's not really any like <laughs> animus behind them anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah I mean it, it came down to you know like me. Like, trying one thing, then giving up on that, trying something else, eventually just kind of sending the book into what are called slush piles of um, publishers, mostly small publishers, that still will look at work um, that's unsolicited that you just send in excerpts of, and um, yeah, and I, the main reason was that
0: like I just wanted to have it out of my hands, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I thought I would, I would quickly tell the story of how Dan got this amazing David Foster Wallace blurb, which was, um, I was living in Las Vegas at the time, uh, and I had had a kind of glancing acquaintanceship with, with Dave, David Foster Wallace through uh, various quarters, but mostly because we're both pretty good friends with Jonathan Franzen. We were both good friends with Jonathan Franzen. And when I would moved to Las Vegas, we happened to just have an email communication which reignited a correspondence, and I um, proposed uh, driving over to see him, and he said that sounded good. What I didn't know was that he was in the midst of the depressive tailspin that eventually led to his his suicide uh, a few months later. And so, um, thinking about Dan's book, and thinking of the problems Dan was having with it, I asked if Dave if he would read it. And he said, yes. And so, I sent it to him. And so, when I arrived in Vegas, he would finished it and while he and i played chess he dictated this blurb this amazing blurb to me and um shockingly even with that blurb attached to the book it still still dan still had a lot of uh uh, roadblocks to kick over but i think that blurb um to, to know that you know this writer that means an awful lot to both of us and means an awful lot to the world i don't know how many of you are familiar with David Foster Wallace's work, but um, he was a very important person in, in my life and I think has become one to you now because I think it was the last thing that Wallace definitely blurbed and for all I know it may have been one of the last novels he actually read. I know he wasn't reading a whole heck of a lot toward the end. Um, and in fact, two weeks after I saw him, uh, he had his first attempted suicide attempt of that uh, summer and then succeeded a little while later. So, um, of the immense, immense darkness of that, uh, the end of that life. I think of this amazing story of this one incredible ray of sunlight, which was his um, endorsement of your book. Um, So, I had a lot of other questions I wanted to ask you and now I'm finding my mind frosting over a little bit. Uh, Do you uh, have anything you'd like to ask me (laughs) about my work perhaps? No, I'm kidding. (laughs)
4: that room
0: book out? <laughs> oh, yeah. So this room book is called The Disaster Artist. Um, My life inside the room with Tommy Wiseau is what the book is called. It comes out in June. And um, I have nothing intelligent to say after that. Um, <laughs> l- l- let's talk about one more, One. I know what I wanted to ask you. So you're with a, a smaller press, which I think has a lot of advantages and has a lot of disadvantages. But I wanted to talk about what your experience basically getting picked out of the slush pile by a wonderful young editor named Mark Doughton. Doughton? Is it Doughton or Doughton? By Mark Doughton, whose taste is impeccable as, <laughs> as is obvious. Um, being picked out of the slush pile by Mark and published and they're really behind this book and, and I think it's getting a lot of wonderful attention. Thank you all for supporting it. And, and um, I wonder if, do you feel like more optimistic about publishing now or, or less?
4: than when I couldn't sell the book. No, no, I I mean,
0: (laughs) you you know what I mean, you know what I'm asking.
4: Yeah, I think it's, uh, there are a lot of exciting things I think happening with publishing that like, um, because big houses are like, uh, focusing on I think more reliable investments, um, that small presses have come in and, and taken the opportunity that, might not have been there for them before. Um, And yeah, my experience with SoHo had been amazing. Um, I like, honestly, like from what I was saying before, like just sending the book out to all sorts of places, I by the time they contacted me, had almost forgotten that I would sent the book to them, and uh, so it was, yeah, very exciting to hear from them. And there's really cool stuff, I was just mentioning this to somebody before, and I was really happy that you mentioned the map.
0: <laughs> Dan drew that map. I drew the map.
4: am like, prouder of this than any other single pair
0: of pages it's in the incredi- book. It's an incredibly good map. Huh? Um, but right, it, it, so
4: Mark, my editor, had been uh, you know, when we were going through the book, one of the questions he had is just, he couldn't get a good sense of where things were situated in terms of the campus, and uh, asked if, you know, I could just put together something, um, and, you know, I got, ended up getting a little more into it than I think he had intended, um, <laughs> but, you know, so, it, and at
0: some point, I just had to stop. And How talk. long did it take you to draw that? Because um, you described it to me like, oh, I just drew the map, and, and then I'm looking at it, and I'm like, wait, are those, like, is this perspective uh, yeah. drawing, the things that you've done yeah. Right, well I realized that like during my day job it was
4: really hard to do any editing like while I'm in the office but it was really easy to like sketch trees and houses <laughs> and things like, um, so I, yeah probably about you know a couple of weeks of like using the copying machine. Like, and stuff like that, like supposed to. Um, but you know, uh, you know, like I, I, I don't think I would have had the opportunity with a big press. They would have had, so, you know, like an actual professional, do something like that. And it would have been much and, uh, less good. Uh, and, and it wouldn't have been as much fun for me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a small house. There's just, you know, maybe a dozen people working there. And uh, yeah, it's been really exciting for me because they all, everybody there has read the book. Everybody behind it. And uh, you know, there are these sorts of opportunities that came up that I don't think would, you know, in other case.
0: Well, I'm published by a big, large, <laughs> shitty, soulish American publisher. My editor is actually standing back in the uh, stacks there flipping me off as I say that. But um, um, Well, I, one, one final thing I'd like to say, which is I, I, wor- I actually worked in publishing. I was a book editor for a few years, from 1997 to 2001. And even when, even then, people are like, oh, the sky's falling, everything sucks, it's terrible, people only want... I mean, the stuff we've always heard, they were saying then. And I think they were saying it in the 80s, and I'm sure they were saying it in the 70s. Like, we need the next Andromeda strain now. And, but what I wonder is, it just seems to keep getting worse. And I wonder if the frog that's boiling to death in the pot... I mean, eventually the frog does die. It does eventually die. And so what I take immense heart from just to get all boostery here is that presses like Soho exist, that bookstores like this exist and that and that not to say that you know corporations are bad or anything like that but it does seem that books that mean a lot to us i think increasingly are going to be published by people for whom they mean a lot too and and that part of publishing i hope uh, lives lives long and forever and uh on that inspirational note i think uh we could Take some questions if anyone has any. You, I mean, when you have such
1: success eventually with this, yeah, do you have another deal from them? Do, are you under pressure to write another book
4: down for someone? Um, I wouldn't say pressure. Uh, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> do, they, I, do they give you money? <laughs> no, they're not yet. Um, they uh, they'll look at uh, have a first look at the next book uh, that I write. Um, It just reminds me of this, um, like, uh, an episode of Behind the Music I saw with uh, John Bon Jovi, where he said, like, you have your whole life to write your first album, and then they give you three months to write your next album. (laughs) Um, So it's not that sort of situation. You know, like, I think uh, one of the things about, you know, having an editor who's sort of, he's also a writer, and he kind of understands, um, is that... He's excited to see what I do next and hopefully he'll want to acquire it. But he's also not in too much of a rush. There isn't that kind of pressure. Um, it might be helpful to have that kind of pressure. I don't know. We'll see in, in you know, two or three years. You have a
1: thought or something?
4: I I did start working on something else because, like Tom was describing, it took a long time after the point where I thought the book was ready to sell and the time that I actually sold it. There were a couple of years there that I had time to kill, Uh, so I started working on something else um, that I had sort of set aside for the past year and am getting back into now. Um, So that's nice to kind of be back in like the rhythm of of writing. Um, And it's, yeah, more of a mess than I remember, but that's kind of okay.
0: Uh, Nobody I carried your hand up first.
1: Um, you mentioned um, Wallace and uh, Branson, and, and I've been thinking about thinkers who create the cultural mood that pushes that pushes culture forward, and that's what's important about writing, ultimately. You know, not making money, but who are the thinkers who are really adjusting the future of the culture? And I've been a lot about this late you know, so I just you know and, and writers who are writing um, that you know they're both help up and we take them off the so shelf we decide who they are. So in you're mentioning indicators, and I'm just want, wondering if you could extend that conversation. Um, I I've been reconsidering some authors and I'm just wondering, you know, I know um, there's a woman in Pritchard, and I'm wondering what women authors that can think are extending that conversation. And um, uh, Jonathan Levin, I think has come out with some interesting books. Criticism in itself is an interesting form. I'm just wondering if you could rip
0: on that a little bit. Like who, like who are we reading, personally?
1: Uh, just the idea of um, publishing, not so much as an um, in industry, but as an extension of the culture. And who are the people out there who are striking thoughts that are really, you know, just like Wallace did. A new way of thinking, it's practically a new language. certainly new no ideas, and notions of metaphor. Or or what he did is he tapped into what we're already writing here. And you know, I that's what I see as the relevance of of somebody picking up a book. The fact that we're able to talk about things that we would not be able to talk about. You know, this looks really important. And it may not be like selling, but I'm wondering if you could talk about those ideas. People who you feel your books We'll be in
3: conversation with, oh man! <laughs> a,
4: a couple, a, a couple of writers that like just spring to mind from what you're talking about. Um, uh, Nami Moon uh, is a writer who lives in in Chicago. Has um, the book Miles from Nowhere. Um, it's like a novel in short stories. That's I think pretty amazing about um, and that I think I um, had to work not to be too influenced by because I thought it was such a, such a powerful book. Um, she, she. Um, the, the book that she's published um, that I'm thinking of miles from nowhere is about a uh, uh, also it's about a homeless teenager uh, a, uh, Korean girl who's I think 12 or 13 at the beginning of the book. Um, it reminds me a lot of Dennis Johnson's, if you know him, um, uh, Jesus' Son. It's also a novel and kind of short stories. Um, but if you imagine like the protagonist of that book rather than being a grown man as being a young girl, um, the stakes are kind of raised uh, precipitously. Uh, M-U-N. Uh, Sheila Hetty is another uh, author. She's Canadian who's um, has just been published here in the last year that I was pretty impressed by. And, um, she's a fiction writer.
0: She's a, yeah, she's a, fiction, a writer. fiction writer. A weird fiction writer.
4: Right. Um, and, and I think some of the differences is, like, like I don't think we've seen the last of like enormous novels, um, but I think there's a lot that's interesting, not in the kind of minimalism that we saw in like the eighties, but in people like trying to find a way to talk and write um, the way that people more naturally talk and write um, and that like the line that I think actually um, Tom does really well between fiction and non fiction and and um things that are kind of called novels or are called stories um, but that kind of bridge the gap between those two
0: um, those are some of the stuff that like I find to be like the most exciting well I, I wanted to say something about about like the relevance of literature and, and that's a word that literature gets pilloried with a little bit like how is this relevant you know like you read a beautiful first novel that expresses human emotion really well and certain people will say well how does this move things forward and I really think as a writer you the best you can do is try to move things forward like one reader at a time and I think one of the reasons Wallace was such an extraordinary voice was that he as you say he tapped into something the way people spoke and thought in a way that no one really had done yet. And I think the challenge for fiction writers right now to maintain their relevance just as something anyone wants to read is that um, when we have like pretty, actually really often very good serial television, we have uh, a lot of entertainment options that are interesting. And so I think this, the kind of big, densely plotted, encyclopedic novel that heavily researched, all that stuff that people used to associate with novel writing, with fiction writing, that someone had synthesized a vast store of information and then gave it to you in this kind of rollicking, rip-roaring read format. I think that's kind of dead (laughs) now with, with information so widely available, so easily accessible. That the, the kind of form the novel used to take is is has to change a little bit, and i don 't know what form that's going to be i don 't like to prognosticate that way because i I just don 't feel comfortable doing it but uh, you mentioned nami moon's book i don 't know if any of you guys are zadie Smith fans, but I just read her new book, and they're very different books, but i I feel like what fiction's purpose is and how fiction stays relevant is by presenting a voice on the page that sort of like lasers right into your own mind. And and it's it's about it's about expressing complicated humanness right on the page. And and, and that the mind feels real to you, feels real. And and it does it in a way that only fiction can do. And I, I feel like that is how fiction stays relevant. And I mentioned Zadie's new book because Zadie's book gives us this voice of a woman in London. Um, that it just in the first page, you just feel like you're in um, like fiction land. You know, you feel like you're in really good hands and you're in this place with this person guiding you through this experience and it just, it feels extraordinarily good. And, and those are the kinds of novels that I'm more and more drawn to is like voice-driven novels about a singular consciousness. Your book does it really well. And, and I think that's kind of what novels are maybe gradually um, making a case for themselves to do, is that presentation of human consciousness. I, I don't know if that sounds at all sensible, but um, someone else had a question. I, yes, sir.
3: My question of observation
0: was that in your book, you also included where you had written it, something
4: that I haven't seen or remember coming across in an a book, and it, it struck me that you saw it as being very important that that, that was included. Just wanted to hear you. I mean, you you addressed it in the book as well, but just wanted to hear you elaborate on that. Oh yeah. So this is um just in the uh, it's kind of a, a new thing with um some of the experiments with like publishers dealing with um you know trying to get books into people's hands. Um. So two things about my book is that it's a paperback original, um, which is sort of. Um, a new-ish idea. Uh, And then there's also some back matter that, like, I think we're kind of used to the, like, reader's guide kind of questions, but also an essay in here and um, also an interview that Tom did with my editor. Um, And as far as the the essay, that's the one that just discusses the various places that I lived while I was working on the novel. Um, And I think it's kind of an open question as to, like, you know, fiction as a practice, how connected it is to where it's happening, you know, that sometimes it feels very much like um, an exclusively uh, mental activity and I think that that, um, you know, is one of the nice things that, you know, you can, all I need is like a spiral notebook and a pen and I can get to work, Um, but I think there's also like, um, it's an open question to me as to like how much I'm influenced by like where it is that I'm doing the work. Um, so that was yeah, was just something I was kind of inter- interested in thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in humor and how humor fuses into literary work. Um, can you talk about
1: humor and how I really, I, I humor does something to an audience and it does something to a reader, and I'm just wondering. Do you, is it a gift? Do you
0: feel it's um, a, a way of seeing Do you actually, um, as a craft, do you craft it? I'm just wondering, you know, I'd like to hear humor talk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my personal view is that I, I'm just not interested in stuff that's not funny. Um, it's not funny, I'm not interested. And uh, I mean, obviously, that's not 100% true. I mean, there's a lot of writers I like that aren't notably funny, but 90% of what I read for pleasure is, and, and, you know, my own stuff, I try to... I think I can't it that way, not out of, out of any design, just because that's the way I write. Um, I think, mean, Dan, you have a very mordant... I mean, this part you read is funny, and I mean, I, I, I think you're like me, Is if it's not funny, it's just, you're kind of like...
4: Well, it doesn't feel like true, you know? If you're writing about people, people are pretty funny. So <laughs> and the, um, yeah, it's just the disparity about how people think about themselves and, like, what we see. Um, there's a fair amount of space there, and uh, that I think is a pretty rich area to, for fiction. And I mean, in terms of craft, I think it's often just taking out the bad jokes, because there's nothing less funny than a bad joke. You know, So for me, it's uh, you know, just a, a lot of cutting um, to try to like, get to the stuff that uh, feels true. And-
0: yeah, it's taking out the joke but leaving in the punchline <laughs> is something that I, I find works a lot, actually. Um,
3: I got a question. Yes. Dan, I was wondering if, since your uh, story involves teenagers, in some of your exploits trying to get it published, if people brought up that as perhaps trying to publish it as a YA book or something like that, and if you dealt with that. Um, yeah,
4: that's, that's an interesting question, and it's um, you know, I, I for my own reasons, I didn't want to uh, market it like exclusively that way or, or try to sell it, um, but. Um, there are books that have done well, and I think some of the, like, um, some of the interest in the book since it's been published has been that, uh, you know, it's because they're uh, teenage characters, it might be of interest. Um,
0: so I thought about turning any of them into vampires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had all sorts of ideas about, yeah, the
4: whole, you know, <laughs> kite whispers and, like, things, Yeah, um, But, uh, you know, it was mostly written already, so it's <laughs> too much work to change.
0: Uh, well, we'd love to sign some books if you guys would like to have some signed and uh, thank you again for coming. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank
2: you.